Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 11 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. That's right. Episode 11. We're halfway through the first season. Welcome aboard if this is your first show and welcome back if you're a previous listener. If you are a previous listener, you may have listened to episode 8 with Chris Calouse, where he and I discussed how he on his podcast and I on this one always do our interviews face to face. Well, here I am, three episodes later, breaking that rule. Yes, today's episode will be a Skype interview. Of the 21 interviews in this first season, this is the only interview that was not recorded face-to-face and was recorded over Skype. We did that because it was the only way we could get this interview to happen. On today's show, we have Chez Brungraber. She's a botanist and wildlife biologist and also the founder of the gear company Gobi Gear. Besides all the time she spends outdoors as part of her profession, she's also an avid backpacker and world traveler having even lived previously in Kenya. So without further ado, let's get to that interview. Chez Brungraber. Some people call me Chezzy, but I usually go with Chez for short because it's easier. I have an undergraduate degree in biology and economics, and I went to grad school for horticulture. I have since then been working outdoors pretty much exclusively. Uh, My main career is I'm an environmental consultant, and I specialize in botany. I get paid to hike around the wilderness looking for rare flowers and map them before they either get destroyed, which is kind of sad, um, or for research purposes. And that skill set has slowly evolved to include birds, butterflies, and wildlife. I also really like to travel. My husband and I have traveled uh, to far parts of the globe. A lot of times when we travel, I search for plants there too and can't seem to turn it off the loving of plants that's kind of me in a nutshell so have you always been into plants were you drawn to them as a child is it something you've always knew at some point oh i'm gonna get into botany i always have loved gardening my mom had these just phenomenal gardens at our house in connecticut when i was a kid and i always had my little garden in the back corner and uh, i would grow delphiniums and hydrangeas and roses and start a lot of my plants from seed and watch them develop. And I always had a passion for it. But when I went to college, even though I was studying biology, I I had this sense that I was going to have to enter the real world, at least what the area I grew up in called the real world, which was Wall Street. I had a few job offers lined up on Wall Street out of college. And uh, I bailed at the last second because I didn't I didn't think I could do it sitting indoors at a desk in Manhattan. And even though I love business, I really, really wanted to just continue working outside. And so that's when I went to grad school to actually get my master's degree studying plants and sort of 
my career took off from there in a very different direction, which was to be outdoors and be a botanist. So what sorts of activities do you like to do outdoors besides those things that you do for a living? Uh, okay, yeah. So I hike a lot for a living, but I also like to hike recreationally. My husband and I really love backpacking trips. Getting to places you know where you can't get with a car is really a highlight for us. And then when we don't have time for backpacking, we play ultimate Frisbee. I'm learning to kiteboard. My husband's better than I am, but that's been really exciting. Um, we play tennis. I do some swimming, some running. I used to horseback ride when I was younger. I don't really have much time for that, but I do still love it when I get the chance. Okay, so we have to talk about ultimate Frisbee because it's <laughs> one of those things that comes up every once in a while, but it's not extremely popular. So how did you get into ultimate Frisbee? I think the simplest answer to that is that I am a very active person and I love sports and so does my husband. And we had a lot of trouble finding a co-ed sport where women would actually show up. We joined a dodgeball team. We joined a kickball team. We joined a baseball team. We joined like all these co-ed sport teams. And half the time our team would forfeit because the women didn't show up. And if you don't have a certain number of women on a co-ed team, a lot of times that means you have to forfeit your game. I kept saying like, well, why can't we find a sport, you know, a team sport that we can do together? And he said, well, I played ultimate Frisbee in college. I think you're going to love it. And that's, Gosh, that was like six or seven years ago. He taught me how to play and it turns out I was pretty good at it because I can run really fast and I can jump pretty high and my hand-eye coordination is not terrible. So, <laughs> and it's just been great because it's something we can do together on a team. Do you have any idea why women wouldn't show up for the other activities? So they do show up for this one, I'm assuming. They do. And you know, I, I really can't tell you it. It's something that baffled me. I don't know if just the women who are drawn to ultimate Frisbee are of a, of a different character. You know, there are obviously very incredible women out there. One of my really good friends is an incredible rock climber. She goes out to Smith Rock just east of Bend. She's amazing. And I'm friends with a lot of women who are great athletes. But for some reason, when they weren't on an all-women's team, getting the co-ed to show up, I, I don't know. I it really baffled me. And we, we lived in San Diego for almost a decade. And even in a big city like that, we had trouble uh, staffing a team, you know, a co-ed team of girls. That's interesting. I, I, I'd be curious to figure out what the issue is there. Women's teams were super popular in San Diego. But like I was saying, it was something I wanted to do with my husband so that we could go to the game together and play on the same team together. And for some reason, the co-ed aspect of it just didn't mesh. I, I don't know what it was, but Ultimate Frisbee, man, the women were always there. And it was it was just a good fit. So that's still what we do three, four days a week now. I'm going to warn a guess right now. And I'm going to say, I bet it's the men's fault. I bet they suck all the fun out of the co-ed game and then scare the women away so they don't want to come back and put up with those men anymore. That's my <laughs> guess. <laughs> it certainly could be. I, I could believe that for sure. But um, <laughs> I tend to be somewhat oblivious to that because I, I love sports and I'm just love competition um, out there. So maybe. <laughs> so you grew up in Connecticut, correct? That is what you said earlier? That is correct. And you are currently in Oregon. That is also correct. So what carried you from one side of the country to the other? Was it work? Uh, no. Well, so when I got out of college, I, I went to college um, at Bucknell in central Pennsylvania. And when I got out of college, I had, like I said, that I had two job offers on Wall Street and I bailed. I bought a surfboard and I said, I'm going to live out of my car for nine months and I'm, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to learn to surf and I'm going to surf when the storms hit the south and I'm going to ski when the storms hit the mountains and had my surfboard, my skis, my bike. And I just 
roamed and lived out of my car for about nine and a half months. Eventually, I was sitting on my board in Costa Rica, just this gorgeous surf day down there. It was just, it was a phenomenal day. And I said, you know, I really, I need to live in a place where I can surf and make some money. Like this, this shouldn't just be a vacation. Like this could be my life. And I realized that San Diego was going to be a pretty good spot where I could surf year round and find a legitimate job because it's a pretty big city. I went back home. I told my parents I'm moving. I packed up all my, you know, 10 belongings and (laughs) off across the country I went and I lived in San Diego for about nine years. Part of that time I was at UC Davis going to grad school, you know, continuing my education in botany and, um, got out of school and then did get a job and started my own business. And then about a year and a half ago, I wanted to try the Northwest. And as Gobi Gear, my other company has been starting to just take off. Um, Bend is a better place to be running an outdoor gear company than San Diego was. So I sort of split time between Bend and San Diego for the two different businesses I work for. So you said that one of the activities you like to do a lot is backpacking. Did you backpack when you were younger or is that something you came to once you got older? You know, I didn't do a ton of backpacking growing up in Connecticut. Maybe just not opportunities, just wasn't really the thing. So that became more popular when both my husband and I were in grad school living in California. We didn't have the money to stay in a hotel anywhere. And so but we said, oh, we're going to go see Death Valley and we're going to go hike through Joshua Tree and we're going to go to Zion and we're going to do the Grand Canyon. And the only way to do that is to go camping if you're not going to stay in a hotel. We said, well, if we're already going to be bringing a tent and camping and a backpack, well, why don't we just kind of see what happens if we just backpack and keep doing it that way. And it was so phenomenal. And we just had the most incredible experiences out there on the trail, life experiences that you just, you can't get reading a book. You can't get reading a blog. Just like the smell of the pine trees in the morning when you wake up at 10,000 feet. And there's just not a sound except for the birds chirping like that. That feeling is so incredible and it was so addictive. And so I'd say I've been an avid backpacker only for about 10 years. One of the things I always like is when you hike into an area and you don't get there until after dark and then you have that surprise in the morning about where you wake up and the view that you didn't know you weren't getting that night. Yes, that has happened so many times to us. I Oh, that is such a wonderful feeling. Yeah. The surprises of nature, you know, and what's around the next peak and what's around the next corner. You you got to get out there to see it. If you were living in Connecticut when you were younger, does that mean the Appalachian Trail ran near mm. where you grew up or was it too far away from you? I think it was pretty far. You know, I did a lot of skiing up in Vermont and then sometimes we'd go up there in the summer and that's where we'd go hiking. Um, I did a lot of hiking in the Catskills, which is in New York, and a little bit in Maine. But the Appalachian Trail, I haven't spent much time on it, and I didn't do any backpacking there. The only backpacking trip I've ever done on the, in New England was um, to climb Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and um, we did an overnight for that. Was it something you were aware of growing up, or was it something that no one spoke about and, th- and that you didn't learn about till later in life? Yeah, you know, really people didn't talk about it much, and I remember there was this one guy we went to high school with and everyone always made fun of him because he liked camping and people would make these jokes that he would like camp in his mom's backyard and he didn't know what a shower was. And I it was always this part of me that was like, man, I'm kind of jealous. Like he seems like he's got something cool going on, not <laughs> camping in his mom's backyard. Cause I, I don't think he actually did that, but he just, he seemed to be so much more free than all the rest of us. And I was like, what is his secret? But 
there really were no, I don't know, no um, outlets for it where we were. Everyone did day trips or they would do like a hike and then they would stay in a cabin, which was still pretty cool. But it wasn't like the backpacking that I experienced when I got out west. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm always curious about that. I grew up in the south, so I was further away. And now, you know, I'm in California and we're somewhat close to the Pacific Crest Trail. If you go to certain towns, they're very aware of it. Mm -hmm. And they have signs out welcoming hikers. But then you travel, you know, 10 miles east or west of that, and they have no idea what it is. So I'm always curious if the Appalachian Trail is the same thing. My impression was that you had to really seek it out. It didn't come anywhere near where I grew up. There were a few people that I was friends with in college that when they got out of college, they went to hike the AT, which was really cool. Um, but even so, it was like, whoa, who are these people? They're going like, to go like seek out this really long trail and go hike it for a month or something. And wow. Yeah, it just it's it's not a really big part of the lifestyle. And I, I think that's changing slowly. But certainly when I was growing up, people went to their clubs to play tennis and to swim. And and, it, and they went to the YMCA and, and did whatever group sport was going on there. It wasn't a thing where people pack their backpacks and disappear for two weeks into the wilderness. Do you have any interest in doing any of these really long distance trails like this, these six month, four month trails? Or do you prefer shorter ones? That's a great question. So the longest hike I've done was my husband and I did the Annapurna circuit in Nepal, which was about a hundred miles. And that took, uh, I think that took us 16 days, obviously loved every second of it, collected plants all along the way donated them to the university there in Kathmandu and just want to go back to Nepal so badly. Um, we've also done a few, you know, mountains and things, but part of me feels that I don't have the ability to just travel for the rest of my life. Like I have to make money. I have to show up for work sometimes, maybe not always, but I do have to put in the FaceTime and put in the hours to pay the bills. And so the idea of hiking for six months, along one trail in one part of the world almost seems like I wouldn't be being fair to all the other places I'm not going to get to see. That's not to say that the Pacific Crest Trail would not be incredible and that I wouldn't do it someday. Just that I really want to get to Chile and Argentina um, first, for example. And then maybe in 20 years when we have kids or something, something that's in America would be more accessible to us. If that made sense. <laughs> too much world, not enough lifespan. That's that's what I got from that. Yeah, yeah. And I I see these great travel bloggers and they just get paid or, you know, they find the way to make money on the road and they just go all around. And even they don't have the time to do it all. You know, like their list is always getting longer every place they go. So Right. It's that, that old adage of the more you see, the more you know there is to see. And the, uh, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Right. Right. And, you know, my personal thrill really comes from seeing new places. Like I love when the plane touches down in Kenya and the air just smells different. And like you just know you are on a continent so far away from where you grew up. That is so exciting with travel and also not just the wilderness, but interacting with cultures and other people and their food. And I do a lot of volunteering um, when I can, when we travel abroad. And I love backpacking too, but I'd rather see 30 more countries if possible and, and touch the lives of people in all these little remote villages around the world and save a six month backpacking trip for some other time in life when I'm not able to do all that traveling. Well, let's talk about that volunteering. What sorts of 
volunteering have you done when you travel? Well, so lately, the biggest volunteering I've done has been uh, the scientific research and the botanical collecting. So for example, I most recently went to Kenya and Tanzania, and we hiked Mount Kenya and Mount Kilimanjaro. And we spoke with the East African Museum, and they told me that no one has done a floristic inventory of Kilimanjaro in the fall. And I thought, that's crazy. There are all these people hiking up this mountain and no one's ever bothered to stop and look at what's blooming in the fall. Like, it's not that hard. You know, there were probably only 150 different species in bloom at the time, which might sound like a lot, but for me as a botanist, that, that's not very many. So. It's probably 148 more than I could <laughs> identify. Yeah. So um, like a typical day of work in Southern California, we might put 400 species on our list in a day. So just to give you an idea, 150 for the whole mountain wasn't that big of a number um, for things that were in bloom. So, you know, that was sort of um, a thing where I I went and I collected plants and I took all this research and donated it to the museum um, so that they could grow their their scientific program where then they teach college students and other kids about, you know, their native environment. So I do a lot of that scientific work, but I've also done work when I lived in Kenya, we worked at some of the orphanages there with some burn victims and some AIDS victims. And I also helped plant trees, dig pit toilets, uh, taught English and math to students. Gosh, I'm trying to think what else we've done, but lots of little dibble dabbles here and there. And just kind of when you see someone that needs help, maybe you just spend an extra day and hang out and help build something. I'd love to hear more about when you lived in Kenya, because I think we have these very specific, probably inaccurate ideas of what other places are like. And since you've lived there and you also were dealing with people who were struggling with AIDS and things like that, you probably have an extremely different perspective than the uninformed perspective a lot of other people are going to have. So can you tell us a little more about that? Sure, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. When I left Connecticut to go there, the first time I was, I think I was 20 years old. So I was pretty young. I had a lot of preconceived notions. I had taken a lot of classes on, on Africa and I still, you know, despite how much you can read about it and learn about it, when, when you actually get there, they're poor by our standards and yet they still might have televisions in their houses. You, you know, it's not like they're all living in poverty and some of them certainly are. And they smile. They smile so much more than I, I think that was what, what just knocked me off my feet. Here are these people that have so little compared to what, you know, the average American has, and they have so many problems. I mean, you want to talk about people who have problems, go spend a week in Nairobi. Yet they were just such happy people. They laugh, they smile, they have fun, they're lighthearted and, and they're so grateful. You know, when, when, I taught students in college when I was a grad student and so many of them wanted to skip out of their homework and one of my students even plagiarized his report and I mean it was like pulling teeth to get these kids to learn and here in Kenya you sit down with a hundred little school children packed into this teeny teeny little chumba this little thatched roof hut and their eyes are on you and they are just so attentive and you give them pencils and a piece of paper and they love you because they want to learn. They're so eager. And it was just this wonderful feeling of being appreciated for the small things in life. Just to realize that 
I don't know, the, the humanity in this world, it can be so incredible. And that, I just feel like that was really eye-opening to me to come from such a privileged American background, expecting these people to be miserable and poor and unhealthy and dying of AIDS. And, you know, their children have distended bellies in some of the slums that we visited. And, like, you know, they're dying of dysentery. And yet, despite that all of that maybe was true, they were so happy and resilient as a people. And it just, it blew my mind absolutely knocked my socks off. And how long was it you said you lived there? So I was there for four and a half months at the time then. And then a few years ago, my husband and I went back for about six weeks. And how was it returning? The coolest thing that I saw was that Kenya had made education mandatory for the children in the country, which was a big deal because when I was there before education was voluntary and it was really only for those who could afford it. And their government had gone and they're doing their best, you know, to implement that all children, I can't remember up to what age, but up to a certain age will be educated. And that was really neat. I felt that the landscape hadn't actually changed all that much. You know, I visited a bunch of the places that I had gone, a bunch of these villages that I had spent time in before, and they felt pretty much the same, which I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You you know, there's a part of me that's like, oh, it's great. You know, all these villages haven't degraded down into poverty, and they're still doing so well. And then other people, would say, well, there's still no electricity here. There's still no no telephone lines here. There's still no paved roads here. So I guess it depends what what side of the coin you're on. But it was it was really neat to be back and just sort of step foot on familiar ground. Have you had the opportunity to follow up with any of the students or people you met the first time you were there and see if their lives have changed since then? You know, I haven't. I I tried when I was there, but one of the places, one of the little communities that we lived in, um, the little, the organization that I had worked with, they had closed down operations there and had moved to a different village. So I was, it's, it's kind of hard to travel around rural Kenya. And even if you have a, a driver, which is quite expensive, it can be hard to get to some of these places. And so I was not able to physically go visit one of the areas that I had wanted to visit so badly, which was quite a shame. And also, back in the day when I was there, people didn't have email addresses. We didn't have a way to stay in touch. And there was the, the little bit of pen pal ship. But as these kids grew up and moved out of touch, I guess there was just no way to to stay in touch with them. And I wish I could. I wish I could see where they are today. I I really do. And maybe now volunteering efforts can be tracked better and longer because of the internet and emails. And, you know, your phone number and your address might change, but your email you can take with you. So I think one of the things that scares people away from traveling a lot is just this sense of danger in foreign places. First of all, before you went there, were you scared? Did you feel like it was going to be a dangerous place? And once you arrived, did you find that that your idea of how dangerous it was going to be was correct or incorrect? Oh, great question. Um, I was definitely terrified. When we went to Kenya the first time, I believe it was not too long after the embassy had been bombed and after September 11th, and there were definitely heightened travel warnings. Um, Those are two things that would maybe make you concerned, yes. Absolutely. Um, You know, and it's like we're a bunch of Wazungu's white people descending upon Kenya, and there, there had been some unrest, and it was scary for sure and definitely there were times when we were there where we were not allowed to travel between points a and b without armed guards like an armed convoy had to go with us and that is a very interesting experience when you cannot just get in a car and drive somewhere that you you need like 16 armed guards for 10 of you you know so that there were definitely times when we were we were a little scared 
But what I guess struck me the most about it was that once my feet touch down on the soil in Kenya, it's like it's the ground, just like in America. And these are humans, just like in America. They're still people. They still have emotions and hearts and souls. And they they have the same feelings and motivations, you know, that we have for life. They need to eat. They need to sleep. They like laughter. They have friends. And once you realize that, that we're all human, it suddenly doesn't seem as scary. There's just as bad people in downtown Manhattan as there are in downtown Nairobi. You just need to not be stupid about it and be like, oh, well, I'm a tourist, so I can just wander wherever I want to and take photographs. Like, as there's areas you wouldn't visit in certain neighborhoods in America, if you are smart about it, I I guess I felt that over time I became more comfortable with the idea of, yeah, it's a little bit more on edge there, safety-wise, but it's still terra firma. You're still on the ground. I think there are a lot of people who think that traveling is kind of a frivolous activity. And I personally think if more people traveled, we'd probably have a more peaceful world. Because the more people get to experience other cultures and realize how much they have in common with other people, the easier it is to start looking at other countries as places with people instead of places with enemies or inhuman people that should be bombed or destroyed. And then maybe we'd start wanting to compromise because we'd say, oh, these are other people with children and responsibilities and and issues I can identify with. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It seems like a lot of our fear and anger towards other countries or people comes from lack of understanding. And it's really hard to understand until you step foot in their home and live with them for a few days or, or talk to them about what their issues are. And you know, why is their government a mess? And, you know, how did it get to be this way? And sometimes you hear their side of it and you realize, yeah, they are just, they're human, just like you. And and they've just been given a little bit of a different starting point. I, I think if people could really see that and travel to the point, not just where they're looking, you know, through a glass window and observing the world around them, but actually interacting with this world, I I think the understanding that comes from that is so valuable. It just, it makes you a better citizen in your own country. And I think it makes you more understanding. I like that you mentioned that glass bubble, because I think there is a caveat to to travel that we have to kind of mention, which is it's very easy to travel somewhere and be locked in a bus and kept away from the culture and then feel like you experienced it and then go home having basically driven through the zoo version Mm -hmm. of an area that feels safer i'm sure and i've even done some of that myself but yeah i think it definitely is going to make a much larger impact if you can meet the people and experience something with those people so when you lived in kenya where did you live did you live in a community of other people that were visiting did you live in the home of someone in the area or some other kind of situation we lived in a small compound i so i lived with several other americans um, who were studying there and we had all native kenyan local uh, professors teachers mechanics cooks chefs everything and we were in a village so imagine the village itself is inside an electric fence to keep the animals out, which is like the opposite of how everything's done in America. Um, So the people are in the pen to keep the wildlife 
out. And then within this little village, we were inside like our own little community there. And we were not allowed out without at least four of us because it was too dangerous to leave the area for wildlife reasons. So the first, so we spent probably two months in this little town. It was called Kimana. And then we spent another two months near Nairobi, outside of Nairobi. And that was more of like a research facility, again, where we were fenced in um, but we weren't as close to local villagers in that one. So every day we would take a field trip out and hang out with the villagers all day and ask what they need and just kind of figure out how we can help them. So you mentioned wildlife. So I'll take this as an opportunity to segue us. You are also a wildlife biologist, correct? That's right. And what brought you to that? Oh, just my love for everything outdoors. I guess what brings me to animals is that they don't have their own voice. And they are just such fascinating creatures. And we have learned so much from nature. We get the idea of flying from birds and bats and insects. I mean, nature is incredible at what it does. I loved the opportunity to get to study it and then also to give these animals and the plants a voice so that either we can help protection plans or, you know, help understand the situation. A lot of times, especially in, in Kenya, the protection of wildlife and the protection, I guess, of people's economic standpoint is uh, sometimes those are at odds with each other. And it's very difficult to, to protect both, um, which I'm sure we've seen, you know, everybody talks about China and how they're destroying their environment in order to become a world power with manufacturing. And it's a really tricky situation. And so I love that interface. That was probably my sweet spot was the interface between the wildlife and the humans and how we can make it work together as opposed to one or the other. So I'm going to create a new term you can use. I'm going to give you this for free so you can describe yourself as an ecosystem expert because you understand the people, the wildlife, and the plants. That'd be pretty cool. You know, I do my best. I, I'm sure there are people out there who know way more on these topics than I do, but it just helps to see the full picture. That That's really what I try to do. And, and in my consulting world where I do wildlife and botanical consulting, it's the same thing. A lot of times we're working with these construction companies that just want to blitz right through the desert. And you have to explain to them, hey, there's this endangered tortoise that lives there and you can't just go blitzing through the desert. And we're going to work together to make sure that you get your project built with the minimal impacts to the environment. And there are ways to work together. And a lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people are, you know, it's black and white, it's one or the other, but that's sort of my specialty is really trying to, to bring the two sides together in a way where we can all compromise. Well, I think it's great that you're knowledgeable in all those arenas because they do all have to work together to have a functioning ecosystem. So if you're only knowledgeable in one, it's easy to overlook your ignorance in another area and then make a bad decision. My husband is a structural engineer, so it helps that I get, you know, his perspective on things. And actually for the last three years, I've been bringing him to work with me in the field and helping me communicate with these construction teams and these uh, big contractors because he speaks their language and I speak the plant language or the wildlife language. And it's just been incredible. We, we've really, I think, been able to do some good work. Um, one little project at a time. We're just 
you know, we're just two people, but it's exciting. So go ahead and share a few of those projects with us and let us know if there's any way that anyone listening could become involved or follow along with any of the current projects you have going on right now. So we actually just wrapped up um, a field season of projects. So I, I only have a couple very small little restoration clearing of a channel um, down in San Diego going on right now. But in general, it would be, for example, a company wants to build a solar panel array in the desert and they have to propose this to their local planning board to the blm to the california department of fish and game u.s fish and wildlife there's a lot of agencies that get involved and then also there's public hearing and people get to vote what happens is a lot of times the people hear solar farm desert and they immediately say no honestly probably nine times out of ten they probably should say no because they're going to destroy some beautiful desert pristine habitat or they're going to go through some um, Native American burial grounds, which can be a really, really sensitive topic. Every now and then the company does everything right. Every now and then they find the, the most degraded desert land and they say, this is where we're going to build it. We're going to do all the environmental surveys and we're going to donate money to a mitigation bank to help preserve other more pristine desert lands. And I guess my what I would ask people who are interested in any of this is that they just try to look at all the facts and actually see what these companies are doing before they decide whether or not to fight it or support it. Because sometimes they should be fought. I will definitely admit to that. Sometimes these these construction companies, they cut corners. But a lot of times they try to do it right. And then it helps when the public can understand that. So it sounds like you're pretty busy with a number of things. You're a biologist, you're a botanist, you're active outside yourself, you volunteer, and you also fairly recently started a company called Gobi Gear, correct? Correct. I started Gobi Gear about five years ago, and it's been in the last year and a half, it's really been growing quickly, very quickly, um, and been taking a lot more of my time, which is super exciting because I really love this company. So tell us a little bit about Gobi Gear. What is it and what does it do? So Gobi Gear is an outdoor gear company where we create interesting products that are meant to have confidence put in the hands of travelers. So our first two products that we are doing are based on packing and being organized while you pack. So take a stuff sack and divide it into four little internal compartments. That is one of our awesome products. It's on Kickstarter right now. We just launched it. We funded in 25 hours. We reached our goal. The real point of this is that this stuff sack, you you have these four compartments inside your stuff sack. So when you pack all your stuff in there and then it gets thrown in the belly of an airplane or on your back, you know, and you go hike 10 miles, when you get to your destination, your stuff is still exactly where you left it. Things didn't jostle around all over your bag. Your sweater didn't end up on the bottom underneath your shoes where it wasn't supposed to. As you progress throughout your travels, you can start separating your dirty laundry from your clean laundry, but still have it in the same stuff sack. If that makes sense, you know, it, it's, it's all there in one spot, but it's internally organized. And that gives people more time 
because they know where their items are and because they're confident that the way they've packed things is going to stay that way, they have more time to just go have fun outside and catch the sunset or pitch their tent before dark, you know, <laughs> which is something I prefer to do, but uh, doesn't always happen. And it's also not just a stuff sack, right? It's also a compression sack. So currently the product that we sell online on our website is called the Hobo Roll. And it actually has five internal compartments. It has compression and it has a shoulder strap. So it's like the only stuff sack that becomes a day bag, um, which is great for people living out of a backpack. If you travel to Thailand and you've got your backpack, you can just pull out the stuff sack, clip on the shoulder strap, and that now it's your day bag. The two new products on Kickstarter are more simple. They are not day bags. They are just stuff sacks. And it's true. We have a regular version and a compression version, like a true top-down style for compression straps really reduce the volume of your your bag. So I feel like with a product like this, there's a story behind its creation. So is there some story where you're in the middle of nowhere and it's storming on you and you're trying to pull something out and you can't find it because it's shoved under everything else in your stuff sack and then you said, why can't there be compartments? Is that what happened here? (laughs) I mean, I would say that that happens all the time to me, which certainly is what gave me the final momentum to to go and do this that I just I got so tired of dumping my entire backpack upside down to find something and just got so angry. I don't like inefficiency, especially when I've flown halfway around the world and I'm in this gorgeous place. The tipping point, or I should say like the one incident, my husband and I went to Zion National Park in March and it was gorgeous. It had just snowed and we got there a little bit late. You know, it was like two in the afternoon and we really wanted to do Angel's Landing. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Angel's Landing. I am familiar with Angel's Landing. I've been up there and it's an interesting experience because it's a mixture of all sorts of people, some who are terrified and some who it's just another hike for them. But yeah, totally. tell, the, tell the audience about what Angel's Landing is if they're not familiar with it. So Angel's Landing is this incredible pinnacle that sticks out into the middle of the Zion River Valley. You access it by a whole bunch of switchbacks, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for, I don't know, maybe three or four miles. And then you cross this saddle and then you start pretty much just scaling the side of this cliff wall. And and it has chains attached to it and like little footholds kind of quasi dug into the side of the rock it's pretty scary and if it's slippery or if you stop paying attention for a minute you could easily fall to the bottom and people do die there um, every year one of my friends was a search and rescue person who worked for zion and she said you know they would lose two or three people a year off of angel's landing so it's it's legit it it deserves respect you could refer to it as precipitous. Yes, that would be a great word. Um, it, is, yeah. it is definitely a long, straight drop. Straight drop. And it's kind of terrifying, especially if you're afraid of heights. But my husband and I had done it um, probably three or four times at this point because it's one of our favorite like quick little jaunts in um, Zion. It was, like I said, it was March and they had just gotten some snow and there was pretty much nobody else in the park, which is fine because, you know, we love it, the peace and quiet. And we pack our bags and, you know, I just couldn't find anything. I, I couldn't find my hat, my sweater. I was like, you know what? It's it's now it's 2.30. Like, just throw it in the backpack. We need to get started. And so we threw it all in and off we went. And 
we're heading up and we pass one other group coming down and they're like, you guys know what time it is, right? We're like, yeah, totally. And you know, look at my watch. It's like four o'clock. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And we're like, okay, as long as you have your headlamp. I'm like, of course I have my headlamp. Get to the top. It's gorgeous up there. It's, you know, 35 degrees. There's snow dusting at the top. And we watch the sun go down over the canyon rim. And I'm thinking, huh, I thought sunset was 630, but my watch says 530. So I'm you like, You forgot okay. about the canyon walls. Forgot about the canyon walls. And you know what else? I forgot about the time change from California to Utah so right. <laughs> yeah so we were like oh the sun just went down and we better we better get out of here because this is going to be sketchy in the dark and we start picking our way down and we we get we get across the saddle right as it gets pretty pretty dark and I say well let's get that headlamp out and you know what couldn't find the headlamp it was nowhere to be seen and I was so disappointed in myself and my husband was disappointed in himself and we just we couldn't figure it out we, we, we were like we know we brought it and it, meanwhile it's getting darker by the second the temperature's supposed to drop into the teens that night and, you know we're well dressed but not super heavy dressed you know because we thought we'd be down by sunset so we just decided whatever we're just going to go we're going to feel our way down the canyon and, and here we go and we made it out almost to the bottom no incidents miraculously and turn around and there's a freaking mountain lion stalking us and I just I nearly lost it and you're not supposed to run and we didn't have we had we had a little um a little like pen light that we could shine and its eyes were reflecting back at us and I was just like besides myself with fear and didn't know what to do because no one knew we were up there it was pitch black there's like two people in Zion besides us and here we are completely unprepared yet considering ourselves to be pretty seasoned backpackers and explorers. And I just, oh, we, we threw some rocks. We yelled really loudly that we think the mountain lion left. It probably followed us all the way back, but obviously we're okay. We made it back. And I, you know, and the next day when it was light out, we found the headlamp way at the bottom of the bag. And it just, it wasn't where we thought it was. And for whatever reason in our chaos at the top, we couldn't find it. And I said, this is the last time this happens. Like, like from now on, we're going to do things differently so that we know where our stuff is, because that was like the worst experience that we had had in, in just all because we couldn't find our headlamp. I've definitely been in that situation where I'm trying to find something in a stuff sack or, or a drive sack, and I just have to empty the entire bag to find that single thing and then pack everything back into it. Right. So the hobo roll was, is that the very first product? that Gobi Gear created? Is that why Gobi Gear exists? Yes. The Hobo Roll was our first idea. And that is what we founded Gobi Gear based on about five years ago. And that was Kickstarter funded as well, or only the new products are? So the first Hobo Roll was funded just by my little bank account. And when we sold out of the first version of the hobo roll and people were like loving it. I said, you know what? Let's bring the hobo roll back. You know, I'm going to refill the inventory, but we're going to do it right. We're going to put 30 denier ultralight ripstop nylon. We're going to use anodized aluminum buckles. Like we're going to, we're going to make this for people who backpack, people who understand what every ounce is in their backpack. Right. And that's what we use Kickstarter for was to fund basically this revamping of the hobo roll. And it was a huge success amazing success people loved it we loved it now we are back literally right now with two new products which are like a slimmed down minimalist version of the hobo roll on kickstarter 
at this moment. And how have you found working with Kickstarter? How has that experience been? Oh, it is a mixed bag. I love the concept of Kickstarter. I absolutely love it. It means I don't have to get a bank loan, which is very hard for me to do because I don't, I haven't been in business for many years and I don't have huge um, lines of credit with them. But it, it can be frustrating because they say, oh, film the video with your iPhone and be authentic and just take some shots of your product and throw together this campaign and and then you you know you'll fund and you'll make all this money and maybe it used to be that way but now if you don't get like studio photography and a really good video and like a really buttoned up campaign you're probably not going to fund it's a little bit tricky to toe that line between being authentic and asking people for money because if I had twenty thousand dollars to spend on a campaign, then I obviously wouldn't need to be asking people for money, right? Like, right. You know, so it, so how do I make this phenomenal campaign without spending too much money? There's so much competition now on Kickstarter that it 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 can be a little bit of a challenge to really to really capture that audience and get get your product and your your page in front of the right people and be like, look, this product is going to help you. They have to see it or else they don't know. You know what I mean? If they don't see it, then they can't pledge it. Yeah, I definitely think there's a certain level there on Kickstarter where when I or anyone else see a posting on there, you want to believe that the person has the competence and and the skills and the resources to make what they're saying they're going to make happen. But at the same time, they can't have too much of that because... If they do, you say, well, then they're a big company. Why do they need Kickstarter? So there's definitely that line that you have to ride. Right. It's so very true. And, you know, Kickstarter has this funky way that um, when you browse the Kickstarter projects and you go to like sort by popularity, it's all based on how fast you're getting funded. And so there's this whole game you need to play that on launch day, you need you want to fund as fast as possible and then keep that momentum because as soon as you lose it and you drop off their popular page then it's like you're in the depths of kickstarter and it becomes really hard to raise money it's just its own funky little system i guess and um i learned a lot doing the hobo roll on it uh the first campaign we did and i think it definitely helped me be prepared for the second campaign. I think we actually spent less money preparing the second campaign, which is great because we need to put all the money we can into the production of these two new products. You know, yeah, it's, it's hard to get the product in front of the right people and get them to pledge it because you know they will if they if they see it. You know that if the right backpacker community saw this product, they'd be like, oh, this makes so much sense. I love it. But you got to spend money to get it in front of them. Well, I can tell you when I mentioned it to my girlfriend and she saw a picture of it, she's like, that is a good idea. Yay. (laughs) It's a really cool idea for anyone who has had the experiences that you and I have had where they just, they dump their whole bag out because they can't find something or they try to delicately extract a sweater and out comes all your dirty socks and underwear. And you're like, well, that was embarrassing. Well, what I tend to do is probably carry more stuff sacks than I need because I carry one for clothing, one for the kitchen, one for this. And maybe I wouldn't need so many if I had compartments inside of a larger bag. Right. Well, that's the other benefit is, you know, if you have all these little stuff sacks, now you have to remember which one is which or you have to color code them. And now you're you're just you're thinking a lot about, well, what one did have my socks and underwear and which one did have my other? Wait a minute. Was it the blue one or the red one? You know, whereas with the seg sack, it's like it's all in one spot. It, it's all in this one stuff sack. It's just they're compartmentalized within and therefore it's easier to access your stuff and you don't have to think as much which i really prefer when i'm out in nature i just want to be hiking and 
you know, taking photos and breathing the fresh air. I don't want to be thinking about where things are inside my pack. So I know the focus for Gobi Gear right now is this new seg sack. Do you have any other products in the works or any plans for the future that you'd like to share? Or do you want to keep quiet about that for now? We have another product that is going to come out in the spring. It's going to be of the dry bag variety for water sport lovers. Um, That's about all I can say right now, but that's going to be really exciting. The reason we haven't launched that one yet is because I'm still trying to lock down the the factory supply chain. That's a dry bags are more tricky, a lot more tricky. And I need to make sure that I really can trust my factory to be making me top notch seals and stitching for a dry bag before I would go and promise it to people. But that's exciting. We have that. And then I have about six other products we have planned um, over the next two years. So we are definitely growing and expanding and we just want people to spend more time outside and less time fussing around, you know, just we just want people to go outside and have fun. So when people think of Gobi Gear in five years from now, how would you like them to picture your business in their mind? As a go-to place for outdoor gear that is really high quality, really innovative, and really functional. So Gobi Gear, really functional. You know, it's going to give you the product that you need. Like, I I don't know if we'll ever get into clothing and that kind of stuff, because that's a whole nother game but it'd be great to be making stuff sacks like just you know generic stuff sacks where you can put your sex sack in a stuff sack crash pads sleeping bags backpacks hiking poles things for things for people to enjoy the outdoors um specialty gear that just helps people get outside and and really really being able to trust your gear i think is is huge when you're exploring the wilderness you, you need to know that what's in your backpack is not going to fail you. And that's really important to us. And sort of all the products we intend to make are going to be along along those lines. So I think we've probably reached a point where we can go ahead and wrap this up. Let us know where people listening can go to find out about Gobi Gear products, to find out what you're doing, any organizations that you work with that you think it would be interesting for them to check out. Go ahead and just throw out all that stuff. Okay, great. Gobi Gear, you can go to Kickstarter right now. And look at it, uh, just look at SegSac, S-E-G-S-A-C. On Kickstarter, you can also just go to gobegear.com for that. My consulting business, you can go to summitwestenv.com. There you can see sort of about the biology work if anybody listening is interested in becoming an environmental consultant, I certainly am open to giving advice. I get a lot of emails from people wanting to join this field of work. It's a, it's a great line of work. So feel free to go to that website and email me from there if you want. Um, and then as far as volunteering organizations, I would have to check and make sure all their websites and all that are still active. So we might have to just post that online if that's okay. Before we wrap it up or before we finish the show, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Anything we haven't talked about you'd like to mention before we go? I think that if everybody could get outside for 10 more minutes a day, we'd all be a little bit happier. That's my advice. So that's your homework, people. 10 minutes. Go outside for 10 extra minutes today, and then the next day, and then the next day. All right, well, thanks for hopping on Skype with me. You're the Skype guinea pig. Thank you so much for having me on and taking the time. This was really fun. I I enjoyed talking with you today.
And that was Chaz Brungraber. If you head to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. You can check out the show notes for this episode, episode 11. There you'll find photos of Chez and her husband, links to that Kickstarter campaign. There's still time. If you're listening to this when it came out, there is still time for you to get in on that Kickstarter and get the seg sack. There are other links there as well. Links to her consulting business and various links to different organizations you can actively join and help other communities. Some here in the States, some in other countries. So go to the website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Check that stuff out. As I mentioned, this is episode 11, which puts us halfway through the season. Season one will be 22 episodes ending in the middle of January. That puts us at the halfway point. So I've been trying to figure out how I want to move into season two. Do I want to give myself a break or do I want to jump straight into season two? Do I want to change the show from once a week to twice a month? Because I don't know that I can sustain once a week as it is right now. I'd love to hear what you think. I'd love to hear if two times a month sounds great to you. Or if you're thinking, no, I want this to be every week. I want this to continue to be every week. Let me know. Also, let me know what is an acceptable break. I'm thinking about taking a break between the end of the first season and the beginning of the second. I haven't figured out how long that will be yet. I am thinking about people I want to reach out to for the second season who are active in sports and activities we won't be covering at all here in the first season. So let me know, what would you like to hear about? What haven't we covered? Or are there people you'd love to hear me talk to? People that you would like to hear be on the show? Do you want to be on the show? Let me know. Also, as I said at the beginning, this was the first and only Skype interview of this season. What'd you think about it? Do you think it made a difference? Was the sound quality good? Do you think the interview felt any different because we weren't face-to-face. I'd love to hear what you have to say, because realistically, I won't always be able to be in the same room with people, and sometimes it will be worth it to do a Skype interview. So I'd love to hear how everyone responds to that. Let me know. How can you let me know these things? You can email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, or you can call us, 818-925-0106. That will take you to our Google voicemail account. You have three minutes. You can leave us a message. If you think you can say everything you need to say in three minutes, go there, do that, or send us an email. While you're there on your phone or your computer machine doing all these things, looking at the show notes and emailing us and calling us up, why don't you stop by iTunes or Stitcher or whatever website or app or device you're using to listen to this that maybe I don't know about. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show, It makes a huge difference because those things decide how many new people find out about the show and where it appears in rankings. So if you've never rated or reviewed the show, please stop by iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to this and do that for me. It will be greatly appreciated. Next week, Carl Domanger. Carl Domanger was the founder of the website ExtremeThings.com and its Adventure Club. He is the person that opened the doors to the outdoors for me. Come back next week. Hear me sit down with Carl, the person who got me in the outdoors and therefore is indirectly responsible for this podcast. So you can either thank or blame him, depending on how you want to look at it. Next week, Carl Domanger. Come back, guys. See you then.